so good to be together. You know, today's sermon is going to be about authority in the church, specifically eldership. Um, but we recognize that in this room there are surely some who have had harmful or even traumatic experiences at the hands of authority figures, either inside or outside the church. And so for that reason, we have two professionally trained counselors in the back out in the foyer um, who are ready to talk with anyone who needs to talk. Um, If anything that's said during this sermon brings up painful or uh, otherwise hard thoughts. So if for any reason during this sermon you would like to speak to one of those counselors, don't hesitate to just uh, slip out the back and uh, meet them on the couches back there. Let me pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. The name of Jesus and the reputation of the church have been disgraced in some ways in recent years by headlines of folks who are supposed to be shepherds of God's flock in authority in churches who used that position of authority to do harm. We've come, unfortunately, to maybe expect it in the realm of entertainment, maybe from professional athletes, maybe from even in the realm of education. But when the headlines are about the church, there's something that stings in a different kind of way. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an abuse of power by misuse of funds. It's uh, using your power to exploit others. It's story after story, but behind each of those headlines are real people people whom Jesus loved so much that he died for them, people who are suffering the pain of watching someone who was appointed to shepherd the flock turn on the flock to devour the sheep. Yet, as we've already named today, the Bible doesn't lay out a picture of leadership and authority that is an altogether negative one. It doesn't paint power and authority as bad. Rather, it paints power and authority as good gifts given by God that, like any other good gift, sometimes get twisted and used for harm by us sinful people. And so, for that reason, today's sermon is going to be about the godly use of authority in the church, and this fits well with our No Spectator series that we've been working through as we kind of are unfolding a picture of body life in the local church, trying to paint a picture of what this next chapter of life at North Suburban Church might be. We're painting a few brushstrokes each week on that, and this week's important brushstrokes will be dealing with our leadership structure here at North Sub and our vision for leadership. Uh, If you've been around so far in this series, you uh, may not be surprised by this big idea. Uh, It's just this. Here's our big idea for today. Let's embrace a biblical model of church leadership. When when all the best leadership ideas of the world uh, are showing themselves to fall short, when no church, no institution is showing itself to be immune 
to major failure in leadership, we want to chart a course forward by looking first and foremost to God's Word. You know, and as a church that believes that this is in this book, God speaking to us, we want to be a church who uses this as true north. Uh, we want to be a church that looks to this and, and really believes uh, that God knows best about everything, including how we would do leadership in the church. Now, before we jump in, I know there might be an objection that some of you are thinking about, um, and it's something like this. Well, well, I'm not a leader in the church. This isn't really applicable to me. However, uh, I want to give you four reasons this sermon applies to you before we even jump in. Uh, Even if you're not currently an elder or leader in this church, uh, number one, you'll be voting for church leaders soon. So in our congregational meeting in April, uh, we will elect elders. What sort of person should you be voting for? Number two, you or someone close to you might be a church leader someday. Now is the time to prepare to become the sort of person who gets tapped on the shoulder one day and says, hey, we, we, we could really use you in church leadership. Number three, you deserve to know what to expect from church leaders. Whether you're a longtime member, whether you're a guest, you deserve to know what our vision, our philosophy, our theology of leadership is. And finally, so you can pray for our church leaders. The hope is that once we get a clearer picture of what our elders and our leaders in this church are doing, we might more earnestly pray for them and with more clarity and with more passion. So nobody gets a pass to tune out this morning just because you're not currently in leadership in the church. This is a word for all of us. Uh, Here's how it's going to work today uh, as we talk about elders in the church. Leadership in the church, uh, leaders in the church are often called overseers or elders in the New Testament. So we're going to use that term elders and look first at what elders do and then at who elders are. So first, what elders do, the role of elders. And we'll be looking at 1 Peter 5 if you want to start turning there. But we're going to be asking the question, what sort of leadership are the elders of our church supposed to exercise? If we weren't looking to this book as true north for us as leaders, we might just kind of go along with the stream of the culture around us in terms of uh, leadership styles that exist uh, in our businesses where we work. Um, For that reason, many churches locally and more broadly have ended up slipping into a mode in which the elder board pretty much functions like a corporate board would at a company. In other words, their function is to make business decisions, to approve budgets, to ensure organizational alignment with the mission and the vision. Scripture, however, lays out a little bit of a different picture as to the role of elders. Dr. Lau this fall preached this passage for us, First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And um, so, uh, and that was an excellent sermon back on November 17th. And we're not going to retread all the ground that he covered in that sermon. I recommend that you go back and listen to it. But I am going to reread the passage as we think through what does it say here about the responsibilities of elders, okay? So if you're following along with me, First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And here's the main command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, what does that look like? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we see there is that this umbrella heading for what elders do, what leaders in the church do, is that they shepherd the flock. That's the main command. And then what comes next after that fleshes out what that looks like. So we actually see that there is organizational oversight involved, right? We might think shepherding the flock, that's different from a corporate board, but there is an oversight component. Did you see that there in verse 2? Right after Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, it's exercising oversight. In other words, the problem with the corporate board model of eldership in the church isn't that elders aren't supposed to be making any business and organizational leadership decisions. It's that shepherding is more expansive than that. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. For example, right here in this text we just read, there are several other aspects of shepherding that we see. Uh, For example, modeling maturity. I'm looking at verse 3 when Peter says, uh, being examples to the flock. In other words, a good shepherd smells like the sheep. You heard that said, a good shepherd smells like the sheep. In other words, you can't be a good example to the flock if you're not around the flock. And so a question for leaders in the church, for aspiring leaders in the church is, do folks in this congregation know how you live? Do they have access to seeing what sort of a spouse you are, what sort of a parent you are, what sort of an employee you are, what sort of a neighbor you are? Another thing that goes under this heading of shepherding here in verse 3 is leading without lording. Do you see here how Peter says, not domineering over those in your charge. Domineering is not just a leadership style according to scripture, as some would want to make it out to be and say that that's just my leadership style. If in your home or at your job, you're an authoritarian type of leader who uh, expects and even demands unquestioning obedience from everybody under your care, that needs to change before you would be qualified for leadership in the church. If we were to take some time to go to some other passages right now, we would see things like this go under the heading of shepherding. Um, serving up the word, feeding the flock, in other words. We would see tracking down the strays, going to track down those who are wandering from the faith, uh, protecting from the wolves, false teachers who would come in and harm the flock, pleading for the flock, going before the, the Lord in prayer on behalf of those under your care. Those are all uh, functions of shepherding that we see throughout the various scriptures that deal with leadership in the Old and the New Testament. There's a book out there on that counter in the back called Church Elders, short brown book there that lays out, these are, these are close to the chapter headings of that book, and if you want to track that down and see some more detail on where those come from. But what I'm trying to show here is that under the heading of shepherding, which is the main call for elders in the church, there are many ways that church elders are called to practically carry out that command. Um, so some churches might say this, um, elders are a team, right? And so one elder is gifted in teaching, another elder is gifted in leading and oversight, another elder is gifted in nurturing. What if as a team we're carrying out all these functions, but we carry out those functions as a team by 
each elder specializing in their particular area. Is that a legitimate way to go about doing this? We've considered that as elders here at North Sub in the past months, and here's kind of a summary of where we landed. Uh, we feel like it's a road that has two ditches that we could fall into on either side. So we're trying to walk this straight path of leading the way God's called us to lead. There's a way we could miss over here, and there's a way we could miss over here. We can miss on the left by something what we might call over-insistence on uniformity. That would be to say that every elder has to elder in the same way, has to shepherd the flock using the same proportions of time on the same priorities. The other ditch would be over-specialization that, that I might say as an elder, well, the other elders have the doctrine thing covered, so I don't need to worry about that. Or the other elders have nurturing covered, so I'll focus my attention on organizational leadership, right? Neither of those quite aligns with what Scripture teaches. And we might just use the, the example of teaching uh, as one example here. So under that heading of shepherding, teaching is one thing. Feeding the flock, right? On one hand, you have a verse like 1 Timothy 5.17, that says, all elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, which makes it sound like some elders are spending more time on preaching and teaching than others. That cautions us from going into this ditch and insisting on all elders teach the same amount, right? There might be some that do that more. It might be some that nurture more. It might be some that lead more, right? On the flip side, uh, we worry about over-specialization because all elders are called, we'll see later in this sermon, to be able to teach and be ready to do that and be involved in some way in the teaching function of the church. And so to over-specialize and say, well, there's some teaching elders, so I don't need to do that, would be a miss. And that's true for all of the essential aspects of eldership. All elders are called to do all of it, even while there's permission for any given elder to lean into those particular things that they're gifted in that would benefit church the most. As we get into the weeds of all this, it's easy to overlook something very basic that underlies it all, and that's that the elders shepherd together as a team, right? And that's not a given uh, in churches our size around the country. Um, there's often one, maybe two leaders, uh, paid staff members, pastors, who are doing all the shepherding in the congregation while the elder board meets from time to time to kind of put a rubber stamp on whatever they're doing, right? That's a very normal way of doing church, but it's hard to find biblical support for that way of doing church. Actually, when we look at the scriptures, what we see laid out there is this model of plural leadership, a team of elders who are sharing the burden, the load of shepherding the congregation together. So what about here at North Sub? How are we doing with this? You know, as we as elders have considered this really over the past couple of years, there's been a growing feeling that we can, we, there's some room for growth in our shepherding as elders here at North Sub. Like when we ask ourselves, are we shepherding the flock that's under our care? We say, yeah, we're shepherding the flock that's under our care. But then when we start to ask ourselves, okay, what are some concrete ways in which we're doing that? We've come to the place where we've said, you know what? We're not quite satisfied with our answers to that question, that, we, that we'd answer to God for our shepherding of the flock that's under our care, uh, the way we are doing things at the moment. And so we've agreed together to take a few concrete steps here in the coming months to ensure that we can do just that, to answer to God for our shepherding of the flock that's under our care. So let me just share with you three concrete action steps we, the elders at North Sub, 
are taking here in this new church year starting in April or May. First, we're establishing an elder point person, so to speak, for everyone in our church directory. That's members, that's regular attenders. Um, We're going to divide up the directory. Each elder will have people. So what that means for you as somebody in the church is that starting in April or May, there will be an elder who is particularly concerned with shepherding you. That means praying for you on a regular basis. That means checking in with you at least once per year on how you're doing uh, in your life and spiritually. Uh, An elder who's available to you, especially in in a moment of serious crisis. Uh, We want to make sure we're accountable to each other in that. Number two, we are dividing the elder board between care elders and directional elders going forward. Now, Once again, all elders need to be involved in care, and they will continue to be. All elders need to be involved in direction, and they will continue to be. However, we are uh, going to give everyone on the elder board either a care or directional uh, uh, assignment so that in between our elder meetings, the care elders can keep us moving forward in terms of the care that we give to the congregation. The directional elders can keep us moving forward in terms of the direction of the congregation, and the care elders will set the agenda for the care portion of our next elder meeting. The directional elders will set the agenda for the directional portion of our elder meeting. And by doing so, our hope is that people will be able to lean into their gifts and keep us moving forward in the mission that God has called us to as elders who are shepherding the flock. One other action step we're taking is that you've heard this. We, we are forming what we're calling a Titus 2 team here in a few months. That will be, uh, in Titus 2, it talks about uh, older, more mature women in the faith, shepherding, taking under their wing younger women in the church, discipling them. And so we are going to be forming this team. We are blessed with a, an abundance, riches of women in this church who fit fit that bill perfectly, who are already engaged in this in some informal capacity at least, taking younger women under their care. And so what we see is that we elders are going to be much more effective in our calling to shepherd the whole congregation if we can unleash and employ the gifts of the gifted women in our church to go ahead and do this, equip them, release them to do that. We might even double our efforts as elders in this shepherding, working closely with this Titus 2 team. So these are three steps we're taking to uh, enhance the way that we are shepherding the church going forward. And more on the Titus 2 team to come. There'll be a whole sermon on that here in a few weeks. Um, As we conclude, though, on this first point on what elders do, uh, there's an objection to this that I've heard uh, different places as I've shared this with people near and far. And uh, it goes something like this. Um, It goes, if you ask these things of elders, that they're this engaged in shepherding, you're going to have a really hard time getting any new elders, right? Because people are busy. Uh, They're too busy to do all this. So two thoughts in response to that, because I think it's an important objection. One is, yes, people on the North Shore are busy. What I've found over seven years of living here, and I'll just say this without further comment, people on the North Shore still find time to do the things that they think are important. Second response to that objection is that we're not adding anything to the elder's plate without offloading other things. So you'll see how the complete picture works in the weeks to come as we unfold different aspects of this vision of church going forward. But an expanded deacon board is going to take some things off the elder's plate. This Titus 2 team is going to help the elders bear some of the load. Um, 
eliminating capital campaigns as far as, as, as much as we can is going to take uh, a lot of time off of the elders' plate in terms of working through money and budgetary issues that they've worked with in the past. We're committed to continuing to make this a place where elders can shepherd the flock and engage in that work, but do it at a healthy, sustainable pace. Do it in a way that allows them to continue to be uh, great husbands and fathers and um, a great work-life balance, a healthy, sustainable pace. So is it a serious commitment to be an elder at North Sub? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I would encourage you to talk to any of the elders and ask them about it. And I think what you'll hear um, is that it isn't an undue burden. So we looked at what elders do. All of that that we talked about, though, flows out of who elders are. Uh, and so we're going to spend the rest of our time here looking at the qualifications for elders that are laid out in particular in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. When we, as you're turning maybe to 1 Timothy 3, that's the first place we'll go here. Um, you reflect on, you know, in an election season especially, what uh, sorts of leaders people are looking for. Right, and you've seen the studies, you know, that attractive, rich, charismatic, charming people are going to have a better chance of winning elections, being chosen for leadership positions than others. You probably have been in a sociology class somewhere along the way where you learned that, you know, photogenic people have, uh, get higher ratings in uh, intelligence, that people think they're more intelligent because of their photogenicness, uh, photogeneity, um, than others. And unfortunately, some of that creeps into the church as we think about the leaders that we celebrate, the leaders, that, the people that we elevate to leaders, leadership positions. Um, and it goes back to what God said to Samuel several thousand years ago, right? That, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart, right? So it's probably not a surprise then that when we see the criteria, the qualifications for elders in Scripture, they are almost all heart-type criteria. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3 here, verses 1 through 7. We're going to walk through it item by item, and then we're going to zoom out and see if we can draw some conclusions as a whole. Uh, so Paul's writing here to his protege, Timothy, who is shepherding, serving as an elder overseer at the church at Ephesus at this time. And here's how he starts, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's equivalent to elder. Same people are talk, being talked about. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, be very suspicious of them. No. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, ask them who they think they are. No. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires... A noble task. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're hearing us talk about spiritual leadership and you aspire to that sort of position, like I would like to be a leader in the church one day, uh, the word for you that we have as elders here at North Sub is that's great. We love that. That's awesome. You, you aspire to a noble task. The next thing, the next step is to ask, does my life line up with the qualifications of a spiritual leader. That's the action step. So let's take a look at what those qualifications are. Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's kind of the heading for this whole section. Above reproach is the qualification, the main qualification 
for elders, and then all these other ones kind of flesh out what it looks like to be above reproach. To be above reproach is not to have any red flags in your, in your observable conduct. Somebody would be shocked to hear you accused of something uh, because it would seem inconsistent anyway with what's observable in your life. So let's look at some specifics here about an overseer being above reproach. Uh, Paul goes on and says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Of course, Paul's not married himself, so this can't be something that eliminates single folks from consideration. However, it is a qualification for someone who is married that you need to be a one-woman sort of man. You need to be a devoted spouse, a faithful spouse, not somebody who's a flirt, somebody who has a wandering eye. Next one, uh, husband of one wife, sober-minded. So question for a leader or an aspiring leader, can you talk through complex issues with proper nuance? Are you sober-minded? Then we have self-controlled question for a leader or aspiring leader. Are your behaviors free from excess and respectable leader, aspiring leader? Are you well-behaved? Are you disciplined? Then we have hospitable. That one seems kind of random to me. I don't know about you. This list of character qualifications, I'm tracking with it. Yeah, that would be important as a leader. That would be important as a leader. But then we have hospitable, right? But when we reflect on the major function of leaders as shepherds, and part of that being setting an example for the flock, like we saw in the first half of the sermon, we actually realize that that hospitality requirement is essential for an elder in the church. Here's what I mean. Um, If my home is a fortress of privacy that I don't allow to be penetrated by anybody outside my family, if my inner life is so closed off from everyone that they can't see in uh, or know what's going on inside of me, in what sense am I going to be able to be an example to anyone, right? In order to be an example, we need to let people in, let people into our hearts, let people into our homes, and that's part of what's wrapped up in this hospitality requirement. And Paul goes on, hospitable, able to teach. We're going to come back to that one later because it's kind of an outlier in this list. And then he says, not a drunkard. So question for a leader or aspiring leader, are you addicted to any substances? And then we have another one that's quite important today, but often overlooked. Not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. That's a requirement for a spiritual leader in the church. In other words, it's not only not okay for you to be a bully, as a leader, actually, the calling is that you must be actively gentle in order to be qualified to, for leadership in the church. So leader, aspiring leader, are you known as a gentle person? Related is the next element in the list, still in verse 3, not quarrelsome. Question, do you relish a theological fight? If you do, then you are not yet qualified for leadership in the church. Not a lover of money, question, are you generous? Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul gets into household-type requirements for an elder. Household-type requirements. Here's kind of the logic underneath this, um, it seems. We saw a couple weeks ago that Paul sees the church as a household of faith right? Like a big family. Um, Now we have household, talking about the individual households, and and how does an elder oversee his own household uh, where he lives with his family? So the logic there is that the church is a household of households, 
right? And when the church comes together, it's all these households coming together with the heads of each household. And then some of those heads of household are becoming elders who are heads not only of their own households, but heads of the whole household of faith together, which includes heads of some other households outside of their own. Um, That's what Paul's getting at, I think, in verse 5 when he asks the question, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, that smaller household management is a prerequisite for being put in a position where you're entrusted with the larger household. How does one do that? How does an elder do that? Back in verse 4, it tells us, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This isn't a, an assumption that the elder's children are going to be perfect. Um, it's not also uh, uh, some sort of uh, implication that we should be able to control whether our kids come to faith in Christ or not. What it is saying is that the elder's children can't be wildly out of control as a result of incompetent management uh, on the part of their father. Verse 6, elder can't be a recent convert. We'll come back to that. And then verse 7, he must be thought of well by outsiders. That takes us back to the above reproach idea that we began with. So we have these qualifications. Um, Titus 1 is very, very similar. You know, in the interest of time, we're just going to read it with very little comment. But if you flip over just a few pages in your Bible, you'll get to Titus chapter 1, and you'll see how similar this list is. Paul's now writing to another protege of his, Titus, who he has left as an overseer in Crete. And uh, we'll just read this and just note any unique elements who are, that are here. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And here are the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, there's our heading again, our summary statement. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now notice the note on that verse, on that word believers. A better translation of that is probably that children are faithful. Faithful, which means what we said it meant back in 1 Timothy, that uh, they're not wildly out of control, that they're under submission to their parents. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then, and then Paul fleshes out the able-to-teach requirement. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um. You see that there's so much similarity there, right? Only a couple of points in which uh, Paul expands or contracts something that was said in First Timothy. Um, we have the, the call not to be arrogant, which is a call to make sure that we are humble folks if we aspire to leadership positions. But I want to zoom out now to two observations, big picture, looking back um, at these lists in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. What do we conclude when we look back at them as a whole? Two things that uh, we haven't mentioned yet that I think are worth noting and spending a moment on. First is the assumption in these texts that elders will be male. I think we should talk about that. It's super countercultural in our day and age. We need to ask the question, 
should we be following this pattern or due to cultural changes has that shifted in some way? Um, we have all male language being used in both of those texts for elders. Um, it fits with what Paul said back in 1 Timothy 2, the chapter before the first passage we read, uh, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over man, over man in the context of the church. Um, we see examples in the New Testament of a woman being called an apostle. We see examples in the New Testament of women, women being called disciples of Jesus, of women as prophets, of women as evangelists, of women in all sorts of teaching roles and, and important roles. We don't see an example in the New Testament, though, of a woman being named as an elder or an overseer of a church. Why is that? Um, and is it cross-cultural? Does it, does it transcend cultural changes to be applicable in our day or no? Um, when we look at the reasons given for male headship in the home in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, they aren't culturally bound reasons. In other words, reasons given are things like, well, Adam was created first, Eve was deceived, um, the, the marriage relationship is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, uh, with Christ as head. Those are cross-cultural reasons given for male headship in the home. And what we've seen today is that Paul envisions the church as a household of households, right? And so maybe part of why this all fits together and why it's all wrapped up together is something like this. You know, it wouldn't be fitting— in Paul's schema here, to have a woman be an overseer, an elder in the church for this reason. <clears throat> it would mean that the woman who's not the overseer or, or head in her own home uh, would then become, in the church setting, head over not only her own husband, who's the head in her home, but also the head of many other heads of households in the church. And so what Paul actually envisions here is households coming together and then some of those heads of those households taking leadership over the church as a whole. You know, as we look at the, the, um, the reasons given in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11 in particular, for male headship in the home and in the church, we've been convinced as elders here at North Sub that these aren't culturally bound uh, commands like the command to greet one another with a holy kiss or to wear head coverings, but rather these are rooted in uh, things bigger than culture, than our culture, uh, the Trinity, creation order, the fall, etc. And as such, we are committed here at North Sub uh, to reserve eldership for males, even as we work uh, to unleash and deploy the gifted women in our church for any number of leadership roles in the church that fit uh, with our theology of leadership and how we understand these scriptures. That's one note that I thought deserved our attention because in our day, uh, it is one that is extremely countercultural, and we'd love to talk to you more about that because I know that's something that many, many of us wrestle with. Um, a second observation, though, just zooming out on these lists, is that 
is, it's what one scholar has called the unremarkable nature of these qualifications. They're kind of unremarkable, meaning that they really should describe any mature believer in the church, by and large, right? With one and a half exceptions. All these items in the list should describe any mature believer in the church with one and a half exceptions. The half exception is the, 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 the one in First Timothy that uh, the elder shouldn't be a new believer. Well, every new believer will one day be an old believer, right? So that's only half of, that's only half of our requirement, right? That eventually, uh, everybody would be uh, allowed to be in eldership as a result of that. But the one that really is an exception that isn't just a character issue but is more, is that one uh, that an elder must be able to teach, able to, to be skilled in unfolding the Word of God and have a thorough enough knowledge of Scripture that they can identify errors and correct them as they come up. That isn't true of every Christian, every mature Christian even. Uh, there are Christians who love the Lord wholeheartedly who just aren't gifted in this sort of way. And there are any number of roles in the church in which such a person could serve, but elder or overseer would not be one of them. So we've seen these qualifications in detail. We've zoomed out on them and seen, uh, we've seen some, just made some broader observations. How are we doing with this one at Northside? We looked at how we're doing with how, what elders do. How are we doing with who elders are um, from my perspective, I just feel overjoyed in my first year as a senior pastor beginning to work with a group of elders that embody these qualifications so well. We're not perfect by any means, but a group of people who strive to embody these qualifications and repent when we don't. Um, however, that said, we have talked about as elders making a couple tweaks in this area too ensure that we can raise up new elders who meet these qualifications and ensure that we ourselves continue to fit these qualifications. So two more action steps we're taking along the lines of meeting these qualifications for eldership laid out in Scripture. One is that I started this fall a prospective elder training. That's going to be a two-year training when it's all said and done, 24 sessions over the course of two years, um, eight folks started, us, started it with us this fall as we launched it, and those eight submitted themselves to study, accountability, and teaching for six weeks regarding what it looks like to be an elder. Uh, we'll have a second phase of that coming up this spring. Let me know if you want to be a part of that. We're hoping that that would become something of a pipeline uh, for future leaders in our church who are well-trained, well-equipped for that role. Secondly, we want to institute, we're instituting together as elders a tangible hospitality requirement uh, that we're going to hold each other accountable to. Namely, just that at least two times a year, we would open up our homes to people uh, in the church. Now, many of the elders are already in that habit, but we're ready to keep each other accountable with it. So if you aren't an elder, I want to encourage you, invite yourself into an elder's home. I want to give you permission to do that. And when you do, and they, you get something on the calendar with them, look around, observe, uh, ask them questions about their life, about their marriage, about their parenting, about their neighborhood, about their job, about how they navigate life as a disciple of Jesus and get to know how it is that they live their life. Now, an objection as we wrap up this second point about qualifications of an elder. I, I finished the first point with an objection. I want to I bring up one here, too, that's been brought up to me that I, again, take seriously. Um, and it's something like this. 
hey, that's cool that you have those convictions about these qualifications of eldership. But if you're not willing to flex on some of these qualifications when you're bringing on new leaders, then you're eventually in danger of ending up with an elder board that's a whole bunch of just great guys who don't have any organizational leadership skills and the church will sink as a result. You need some people with some business savvy, uh, even if it means flexing a little bit on some of these. What do we think about that? Um, How I've responded to that is to say, you know what, we as elders, should we ever get into that place where we are lacking in business savvy and organizational leadership skills on our board? Um, Nothing says that we can't invite in somebody with those skills to consult with us, to advise us on a course of action in a given situation, and we would do that. Um, However, to bring someone like that on the board, knowing that they don't quite meet the criteria that's spelled out in Scripture is a, is a recipe for disaster. So what you're hearing and all that we're doing here, again, is just this big idea for today. Let's embrace a biblical model of church leadership. Uh, we don't know where else to go, right? When the, when the world seems to be floundering and nobody seems to have figured out leadership and how to avoid these abuses, we want to turn here to our true north, turn our compasses toward that and embrace a biblical model of church leadership to the extent that we can. So whether you're an elder, an aspiring elder, whether you're somebody who's going to be voting for elders, praying for elders, whatever part you play in this, let's partner in this together to embrace a biblical model of church leadership. And after all, these qualifications, these tasks of a leader, they weren't created in a vacuum. You know, it wasn't a think tank that came together and just put their best ideas down on paper here. The qualifications we saw today, the, the activities of a leader that we saw today are the practices and qualities of our chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the exact opposite of the shepherd who exploits the sheep, the shepherd who neglects the sheep, the shepherd who feeds on the sheep. Instead, he's the shepherd who laid his life down for us. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I want to invite up uh, the current elders at North Sub, and, and we're going to, we want to give you a chance to meet the team of elders that we have here, and it's a team of elders who we tremble at this responsibility to uh, be under shepherds under Jesus Christ, yet we're eager to give our best to lay our lives down as he did for the flock that's under our care. Let me pray. Lord, I confess I feel inadequate as a shepherd of your flock. I feel uh, woefully ill-equipped at times for the great task that you've put before me. And I know these fellow elders feel the same. Lord, strengthen us. Thank you for the example of your son, Jesus, who laid down his life for us, the sheep, Help us to do the same in our role and for all of us in the church, in the various leadership roles we find ourselves in. Help us to be imitators of Christ who are shaped by gratitude for what he did for us and how he used his position of power and authority to pour himself out and bless us. Help us to follow that example. Help us to be known around the North Shore for being a church 
who uses authority in a way that is a blessing not to do harm. In Jesus' name, amen.